Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Since this is the designated introductory position on the stage, I thought I would just move over here to uh, uh, say a few words about Justice Breyer. I'm sure uh, many of you know that he was appointed to the Supreme Court in 1994. That was 14 years uh, after he uh, was appointed to the First Circuit Court of Appeals in Boston. So he brought to the Supreme Court considerable experience with how the circuit courts deal with the cases. Uh, and in fact, perhaps uh, all but a tiny percentage of the legal questions in this country are decided in the district and circuit courts. Only a small number make it to the Supreme Court. Uh, he was born, of course, in San Francisco, attended Lowell High School there, a proud graduate of that fine public school, uh, served a year in the Army, and then went on to Stanford, uh, was a Marshall Scholar at Oxford, then the Harvard Law School in Cambridge, and then to the Supreme Court, where he was a clerk for Justice Goldberg during the 1964-65 term. Uh, after that, he spent much of his career in academia, teaching law at Harvard, and also working uh, here, as uh, many of you are, uh, on the Hill uh, for the Judiciary Committee, where he became chief counsel for many years. Uh, he therefore brings to the Supreme Court a pretty sophisticated appreciation of what goes on across the street, and many of his opinions have noted the way that the legislature goes about its business as well. But beyond those uh, sort of uh, not incredibly atypical resume elements for a Supreme Court justice uh, is the fact that uh, Justice Breyer has been particularly concerned with reaching out to the public and trying to introduce them to the way the court works and what it does. When I uh, showed up uh, for this assignment as Supreme Court uh, correspondent for our newspaper in 2005, and I visited some of the justices to present my credentials, uh, Justice Breyer had a question for me, which was, why are there so few Supreme Court correspondents covering what we do here? And he had noted that the number had declined year by year, and today there are fewer still. Uh, and my response, of course, was, why are you asking me? You know, I'm just a rank-and-file employee. The people to talk to are the, the uh, people who own and run newspapers. And so he said, well, set it up. I'll come and tell them. And uh, that uh, year he was the keynote speaker for the American Society of Newspaper Editors, where he uh, explained to them why he thought it was important for there to be people who make uh, their jobs covering what the Supreme Court does, because it is a complex institution. Its cases often have tremendous uh, uh, histories to them, and they relate to many decisions that came in years before. So Justice Breyer has uh, exemplified that spirit in two books, and the most recent one uh, we've seen tonight, Making Our Democracy Work, A Judge's View, uh, and uh, in coming over to begin the program, uh, I would say, uh, Justice Breyer, that the theme of your book, it seems, and now I'll shift over to the talk show uh, type <laughs> location. The, uh, the theme of your book, if, there, if, there, if it could be distilled to one, which is the story uh, by which the United States came to entrust so many decisions, the last word in so many decisions, to uh, uh, the nine unelected members of the Supreme Court, how we became uh, a country that views this institution as the, as the definitive one to tell us what our Constitution means and to sort out these problems. It tells that story, but it does it in an interesting way. I'm hoping you might tell us about that, uh, as well as a bit about what it means to be a Californian here in this 
a bastion of uh, Eastern establishment uh, culture. So uh, what? You mean because I'm a Californian, then you can learn from my example. Don't stay here. You get stuck. You know? <laughs> I mean, it's fabulous, California. <laughs> I don't know why my brother says, yeah, I'm really out of my mind. You know? But anyway, I did sort of get stuck here, and here I am. Uh, <laughs> but, but I still feel as if I'm... I said that today. There were some Japanese uh, uh, law professors who came by the court, and we were talking about you are inevitably, as you will be, influenced by your own background. When you uh, get older, your background influences you, and that's where you get your basic ideas. And they said, you mean when you were teaching at Cambridge? I said, no, where you learn, books are written on this, and so I'm not very original, but it's high school, and it's growing up in San Francisco. I said, that's what's made the difference. I just got stuck. <laughs> at, at, at Harvard. So anyway, you can, you can, you can learn from that. Uh, it's nice to be here for a year, and I'm sure you're finding it interesting. And you're really doing what I, uh, uh, why I've written this is, is I, I, I understand, as you obviously understand, that there's a certain tendency towards cynicism in government, uh, about government, and uh, some of it could be justified. But if everybody's so cynical that they're not going to participate, then of course it won't work. All right, so our problem is how do we explain that to people? And you could do a better job than I, because they'll believe you, they won't believe me, they'll think I'm sort of out of it. But, but the, 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 uh, the fact is uh, we have to explain it. And uh, the hardest part, I think, is the judicial system. I mean, I'm in that. But I mean, I think what <laughs> you said, which is true, I got this brainstorm that I would talk to the newspaper publishers so I could insidiously get across the idea that it was nice to have some reporters writing about the judicial system. I have never met a more hostile audience. I mean, they didn't want to be told to hire any more reporters or anything. So is that there's some truth to that? And, and uh, it's hard to tell people. So the job, because I think you're lecturing. You know, and, and particularly, I think, well, look, here we have an institution, the court. And you'll see, why is it there? I mean, this is something that Hamilton writes about. He says, why have we given these people, these, there weren't nine, then, however many there were, but, but uh, uh, why do we give them the power to set aside a law of Congress? Why? And if you have a chance to read, you know, if you have nothing better to do, read Federalist Number 78. It's a great, it's short, it's pretty good. And he explains it. And he says, this, they've just written this document. And he knows that this is a really excellent document. I mean, he was a genius. He, he really thinks it's a fabulous document. So he's thinking, yeah, it is a good document, but how do we know, if we don't have somebody who can have the last word sort of in interpreting it, if we don't have somebody to say when the other parts of the government have gone outside the document, it'll be a beautiful document. But, but, I mean, let's hang it up in the National Gallery. Actually, he did not say that. There was no National Gallery. At the, but, but, but you understand the point. He said, somebody's got to have some enforcement power here, but who will it be? The president. No, the president has too much power anyway, he's thinking. And he'll just say, always say he's right. Well, what about Congress? It's a Congress. That's an idea. He says, but look, Congress, uh, this document gives exactly the same rights to the least popular person in the United States as it gives to the most. He says, Congress? He says, Congress, believe me, they know popularity. I mean, they are experts on popularity. I mean, if they didn't know popularity, they wouldn't be in the jobs they're in. 
But can we really trust them to do things that are very unpopular? When it comes time to helping those people whom nobody likes. Well, he said, I'm worried about that. I worry they won't do it. Now, who do we have? Well, we have left these sort of judges up here. What are they? Gray. Nobody's ever heard of them. They're kind of like bureaucrats in a way. I mean, they, 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 they're lawyers, that's good, so this has something to do with law when something exceeds the constitutional boundaries. They don't have the power of the purse. They don't have the power of the sword. Fabulous. They're weak. They won't get carried away. They're gray. Nobody's heard of them. Wonderful. We'll give them the power. They won't abuse it, we hope. You see? Do you see how he's thinking? I've exaggerated. But the 78 does say something like that. But then he does not ask this question. If these people are so unheard of, no purse, no sword, and now what are they going to decide? They're going to decide things which sometimes are going to be unpopular. That's the job. And they're going to set it, and they are unelected but they're setting aside the, 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 the work of the people who are elected. And by the way, they are human beings, and therefore they may be wrong. And indeed, if they divide 5-4, I mean, somebody must be wrong. If I'm in the four, it's the five that are wrong, I'd like to know. But, 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 but in any case, you understand the point. Now, what I say here, the, the line I like, because it's a good line, it wasn't invented by me, it's Shakespeare. And Shakespeare and Henry IV has Owen Glendower, who's a Welshman coming in, and in Shakespeare all the Welshmen are mystics. So Owen Glendower says, I can call spirits from the vasty deep. And Hotspur, a practical Englishman, replies, well, so can I, so can any man. But will they come when you do call for them? You see, that's a big problem. And so now you see what our problem is? The man or the woman who's going into the supermarket, who is not a lawyer, who is not a judge, and contrary to popular belief, you know 308 of the 309 million people in America are not lawyers? Is it? And she has to support it, or at least, you know, be open to that. And this man or this woman is pretty busy. They have children. They've got to buy food. They have things to put on the table. They have bills up to here. It's not so easy to have two jobs, to have children, to have to take care of a house and do all those other things. And how in heaven's name am I ever going to get her to listen to anything that I'm going to say about why she should support this vague institution called the court, which is unpopular. What does it do for me? I say it helps you. Oh, really? Okay, tell me later. All right, but suppose, and that's my imagining, that I have, my imagining is I have her attention, or his, for half an hour, or an hour. So if I'm careful, I can explain something about the court, and that's what I'm trying to do. So, I mean, the, the first, shall I, shall I continue a little five more minutes? Well, I, you know, the, the I, I think... timekeeper. <laughs> <laughs> The, uh, the book is, is really it's structured in, in two parts. And one part is you have lessons from history. And I think that uh, you know, the, despite uh, increases in fees, most of these students still have $20 bills. And if they look on them and see President Jackson, uh, they see someone who did not uh, pay too much attention to what the Supreme Court did. And you discuss that episode in your book. Perhaps you could talk about that and how yeah. it changed and perhaps why it changed. Well, that, that is, you see, I get this question, though. I, I put it, you try to put it, you say, in a personal way, because I feel it in a personal way. 
But but I'll get this question. Recently, about eight months ago, the, the woman who is the president or the chief justice of the Supreme Court of Ghana uh, says, and she had been trying to bring uh, democracy and protection of human rights uh, to Ghana, and they're not doing a bad job. So she wants to know, as the Japanese wanted to know, as many people from all over the world wanted to know, what is the secret? Why? What's the answer to Hotspur's question? Why? Why do people do what you say? Now, uh, I said part of it's a document. It's a genius, brilliant document. We know that. But that isn't the whole story. And I can't give you a single answer. But I can tell you some stories. And I'd like to tell them two or three. And I can summarize. And one is the one that Jess just brought up. Very interesting story. Soon after the court in Marbury, which you'll read about if you haven't read, probably have read it. I'm not going into it. <laughs> it said that the court does have the power to set aside a law of Congress when it's unconstitutional. But they didn't know people would follow it. In uh, a lot of uncertainty, and uh, it's a kind of brilliant tour de force by, because Jefferson, uh, that's what John Marshall's very worried, that Jefferson won't follow his opinion. So what he does is he arranges it so Jefferson wins the case. So he says we have the power to set aside a law of Congress, which Jefferson hated that idea. Hated it. But Jefferson couldn't complain because he won the case. Now, how he did that is a kind of Houdini. And he did it. And you can read later how he did it. If you read it. But I'll, uh, now, next 10 years or so, 20 years, nothing much happens. Uh, they don't hold many uh, cases unconstitutional. They're worried. The court doesn't know if people will, when the chips are down, really follow it or not. And they had cause. And one cause is the case that Jeff is talking about. The, 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 Nor the, uh, the Cherokee Indians, uh, under treaty, owned northern Georgia. It was pretty clear. They had been given this territory. It was theirs. And uh, the, the, uh, the tribe, the Cherokee tribe, had given up hunting and fishing. They were farmers. They had a constitution. They had a great chief, Chief Ross. And uh, they had one more thing which was unfortunate for them, and they found gold. And it was unfortunate because the Georgians think, well, why should the Indians have gold after all? They're just Indians. We're Georgians. <laughs> and and uh, uh, so uh, uh, they took the gold. And the Indians did, of course, do what any uh, civilized group of people would do. They hired a lawyer. The lawyer, the greatest lawyer of his day, Willard Wirt, finally gets to the case of the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court decides the case finally and says, of course, this land belongs to the Indians. And that's the case. You may have heard of it under a different guise. Because a famous, so supposedly, Andrew Jackson said of that case, John Marshall made his decision, now let him enforce it. And Jackson sent troops to Georgia, but not to enforce the decision. He sent troops to evict the Indians. And that's what they did. And they traveled along the Trail of Tears, so-called because so many died along the way, and some ended up in Oklahoma, where their descendants live to this day. You see, it did not start out to be very promising. All right, but roll, roll the camera forward, and you'll get a story I like a lot more. It's very meaningful. I, I just think it's a terrific story. And it's not just as a story. It's a very good thing for the country. After Brown. <coughs> in Brown versus Board, as you do know, the Supreme Court in 1954 says that racial segregation in the schools is unconstitutional. This document says equal protection of the law. 
no state shall deprive any person of equal protection of the law. Well, I mean, I was alive then in 1954. I was uh, conscious and grown. So, and I, uh, anyone at that time who thought people were being treated equally in the South just had to open their eyes and look. I mean, that wasn't even close. And the court said, this is what it means. This is what you'll do. That's 1954. In 1955, do you know what happened? Obviously, you know, nothing happened. Yeah, virtually nothing. 1956, yeah, nothing. Nothing happens, or not much. In 1957, a federal judge in Little Rock says, the time has come, Little Rock, which is a more moderate school board, moderate community, integrate Central High School, the white high school, bring some black students in, and that's where the Little Rock Nine, that's where they came from. They were chosen particularly because they were bright and they were brave, and uh, they were going to integrate that school. Well, during the summer, Governor Falbus, who uh, had started out as a moderate, but the politics kept shifting towards the segregationists, and so he became more segregationist, he said, no, I'm not going to let them in. And by September, he told his uh, militia, he said, fine, there's a federal judge with an order, but he's just a federal judge. You know, I have the police. And he told the militia, don't let them in. And in that first week of September, uh, in they went. Uh, ha, no, they tried to come in. They tried. They went out there, and they were turned away. And there were mobs in front of the school. And some of you will have seen, I hope, the picture of Elizabeth Eckford, uh, who very dignified, walking away. And there's a woman in back of her whose face is, is just enraged, enraged. That picture went around the world. It wasn't a happy picture of the United States of America. And so the Brooks Hayes, who is the congressman from uh, Little Rock, called President Eisenhower and arranged for a meeting between Eisenhower and uh, Falbus. And Governor Falbus went up to the White House, uh, the Summer White House, which was in Newport, and uh, he spoke to Eisenhower, and he, uh, he came out later and he said, the president dressed me down like a, like, a, like a general dresses down a sergeant. He told the president he would allow integration. And he came out of the room and told the press the opposite. And Eisenhower was pretty angry. Well, what should he do? He took advice. Jimmy Burns, who was a member of our court before World War II, then resigned in order to run the war effort in World War II, the domestic part of it. He was governor of South Carolina, moderate on race, told Eisenhower, if you send troops, you will have to reoccupy the South. You will have to have a second reconstruction. Are you prepared to do that? Herbert Brownell, the attorney general, who was Eisenhower's wide counselor, said, you've got to do it. You've got to do it. You can't just allow this law to be ignored. And Eisenhower took about two days, and he said he's going to do it. And what he did is he took a 1,000 paratroopers from the 101st Airborne. Now, everybody knew in my generation and older then who they were, the 101st Airborne. The 101st Airborne were perhaps, I mean, they were heroes of World War II. They had uh, been paratrooping uh, gliders. They, they went into uh, Normandy, and a lot of them got hung up in their parachutes and um, on the steeples and were shot. And they were heroes at the Battle of the Bulge. So Eisenhower knew just what he was doing. And he, he, he picked them purposely. A thousand of them uh, went off to uh, uh, Little Rock, flew there, went down. Uh, the next day, they escorted those black children into that white school, and pictures were taken, and they went around the world. And that's a happier day. That's a happier day. A very happy day for the rule of law, 
for the cause of equality uh, for the United States of America. Okay. I wish I could end that, and I probably will for this moment, but that isn't the end of the story. That isn't the end of the story at all. Those children did not have such a nice year in that school. And a different school board came in. And that different school board, you see, came in and said, we're ending this. And uh, they tried to bring a case in the court. And that's the court case that went all the way up, Cooper versus Aaron. And nine judges said, you have to integrate. Now, now, integrate. Do it. There's no getting out of this one. And they all signed it, see, which is very unusual in the court. But wait, it's just nine people, you see. You could have had nine. You could have had 900. You could have had 9,000. The day after the court said that Little Rock loses, that that school has to be integrated, Governor Faubus closed the school. And nobody got educated. And it was closed for close to a year. And read what happened to the children in it. Sad. It's sad. Everybody. Everybody. So you say, well, this is not a very happy story. Well, 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 you see, look, I'm a judge. And I think it's a very good story because it was unstoppable. That was the period of the Freedom Riders. That was the period of Martin Luther King. That was the period when integration began in the South. And so I don't say that sending those thousand paratroopers turned the trick. It wasn't going to do it by itself, but it did help. It certainly helped. I well, think let it was me absolutely uh, unstoppable. I, I, now you I, see the world that we've come into that you're born in. I'm just saying you're born into a world where that's all happened, and it's all happened, and so you have a tendency to see people who will accept as natural that you follow the court, even when it's wrong, even when you don't like it, etc. Right. Well, I was. Uh, I'm going to return to Cooper versus Aaron, and then we'll take some some questions. But first, though. You've described these two points in history, the Cherokee case and, and uh, uh, the Little Rock case. Why, though? Why did the attitude in the country change over that century-plus time to where the court could be ignored, to where uh, the court, even when it made extremely unpopular decisions in the South, was grudgingly eventually obeyed? That's, you have to ask the sociologists, the historians, the, the people who understand human nature, the people who understand history in depth. I'm not going to tell you the answer to that because I don't know all the answers there. I think if I ask me as, a, as, a, as an observer, I think that battle for desegregation was very, very, very important in the history, in the history of, of the country, in the history of law, as well as just the history of human rights. Yeah, I mean, there are several things going on at once. And people did become much more used to. I mean, the South was really opposed. So it required a lot of things. And all I can tell is my friend from Ghana. I say, look where we started. And look, it's an ups and downs, our country. We had a civil war. We did have 80, we did have 80 years of legal segregation. We did have slavery. We had all those things. All right, so it's like this, you know? And uh, uh, so I, the reason I'm telling you that story is because I want you to see that what the answer is is gonna lie in time, patience, keep going, continued effort, where might you end up? Let's take a case I didn't like. I was in the dissent. I thought it was wrong. That's Bush v. Gore. Okay? Now, one of the most interesting things I heard about that case was uh, um, the uh, majority leader, uh, um, Nevada Senator Reed. Senator Reed. Thank you. My 
Uh, Senator Reid said uh, when he was at the court, he said one of the most remarkable features about that case is uh, something that's very rarely remarked. And he said, and despite the fact that that's a very important decision, I think it was important, despite the fact is very unpopular, it was unpopular with at least half the country, uh, and despite the fact that I think he thinks it was wrong, I think it was wrong, people did accept it, and they didn't go out in the streets and start shooting each other and throwing bricks and, and uh, killing each other. And so I know, particularly the college, if I t say that at college, I really understand that there are at least 20% of the people there would say there were no riots, people were not killed, they accepted it. They're really thinking, and too bad there weren't some. <laughs> yeah, I know that's a certain number of thinking that. So to those, I say, fine, turn on the television set. You know, it's obvious to you. And you see what happens when you have countries where people decide their differences in the street with guns instead of in the courtroom. Now do you see what I see every day? And that's the thrill of it, in a sense, the first day, as well as it is today when we're sitting. You see people in that courtroom, in every race, every religion, every point of view, I shouldn't tell you what my mother used to say. She used to say there's no point of view so crazy that there isn't somebody in this country. <laughs> and we live in San Francisco. She says they all live in Los Angeles. Now, I don't really need <laughs> but But, but, but well, you see that they're in the courtroom. And that, that is something I see. Now, now, have I communicated something to you about sort of the thrill of my job? And that's what I, that's what I want you to say. Well, uh, that's a good segue into uh, a, uh, a, a recent uh, discussion of Cooper versus Aaron that I wanted to ask you about. One of the uh, candidates for president this year, the former House Speaker, uh, Newt Gingrich, uh, has a long passage on his campaign website discussing that case and what a tremendous error it was. Now, this was the case that where the Supreme Court told the state of Arkansas unanimously, with each of the nine justices signing the opinion personally, that they had no authority under the Constitution to uh, ignore the Supreme Court's constitutional rulings. Arkansas passed a law saying that they didn't have to follow the, the Supreme Court. So uh, Mr. Gingrich said that that opinion was wrong on, in history and in doctrine. It, quote, uh, the court asserted by itself that the Supreme Court was supreme over the President and the Congress. You had a fundamental assault on our liberties by the courts. Uh, that decision, Cooper versus Aaron, uh, began an era in which the courts became grotesquely dictatorial, Mr. Gingrich said. The courts have been trying to impose an elitist value system on a country that's inherently not elitist, says the former history professor, Mr. Gingrich. So, and he has said that one of his principal aims, if elected president, would be to stop such uh, decisions, and he has said he would disobey ones that the court got wrong. Uh, so is this, a di is this a discussion that's over in our country, or is it still going on? One thing I've learned, being a member of the court, is every person in this room has one right that I had to give up in order to become a judge. And that is the right to comment on politics. <laughs> I mean, you can ask him whatever you'd like to ask him. Well, I'm just <laughs> noting that, oh, no, that, that uh, you know, that, that there are, that not everyone uh, celebrates that decision the way that your uh, account treats it as a great moment in our constitutional history. You have at least one uh, former high office holder and 
uh, an aspirant for high office again who, who, who views it as a, as a dreadful turning point. So students, you should all, of course, read it yourself and draw your own conclusions about what that case was about. Um, now, uh, we're, of course, uh, and, uh, we're already uh, a bit behind schedule, so why don't we start with some questions from the, uh, from the folks here, and uh, we'll uh, see if we can uh, broaden them if necessary. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for coming. Uh, we really do appreciate you taking your time out to uh, talk to all of us students. Sure, my name is James Tijisputra, uh, and I come from the uh, campus of Riverside, UC Riverside. Um, my first question is regarding uh, Citizens United, and uh, if I could get your thought process and how the court came to decide that com uh, corporations are people. Uh, and the second one is, will the Supreme Court uh, take up the Prop 8 case? You see, well, one of the problems I have is that let me, let me, the let things me that really interest you, I'm not really allowed to say very much. <laughs> to, uh, that's, yeah, to, to, well, let, well let's, let's turn around a, a little bit, and this is a, a skill that I, I try to hone on, on, on the 6 a.m. show on C-SPAN where we get callers from all over the country with interesting questions in which you then help them ask the question they wanted to ask. So <laughs> here, Citizens United, for those who haven't followed it, was a big decision that came down in January of 2010 in which the Supreme Court uh, overruled uh, decisions that it had uh, delivered in 1990 and 2003 that had upheld, and editors hate all these double, triple, quadruple negatives that are necessary in describing what the Supreme Court does, <laughs> but it overturned two decisions that had upheld limits on uh, corporate and uh, union spending for political purposes. There have been campaign finance regulations at the federal level and implicitly uh, it overturned similar state laws. And uh, so that was that, that decision has apparently had a big impact on the current campaign. Uh, and it was uh, quite uh, uh, divisive. The president uh, spoke of it at his uh, 2010 State of the Union address. Uh, that uh, received some notice. Now, more recently, however, uh, the uh, one state Supreme Court in Montana found that its very similar law, which dated from 1912, was not covered by the decision that the U.S. Supreme Court made in this Citizens United case. And the Supreme Court is currently considering whether to review that decision in a very brief order that the court uh, gave staying the Montana Supreme Court decision Justice Ginsburg, uh, joined by Justice Breyer here, suggested that uh, perhaps it was time to revisit the Citizens United case. Now, we obviously are not going to tell you or ask you what that revisitation might lead you to or if it would lead you to a different view than your dissenting opinion uh, just two years ago. But perhaps you could talk about the process by which the court chooses to review its prior holdings. I mean, here we have a case which uh, overturned some relatively recent precedents, which themselves were built on prior understandings, I suppose, of, of the law. Uh, just last week, the court agreed to take a, a case that may lead it to revisit yet another 2003 precedent, one involving affirmative action in university admissions. How do you decide, uh, you perhaps individuals of justice, and then more broadly the court as an institution, when it's time to review a prior decision. All right, let's do, well, let's see, because actually one thing to keep in mind is um, 
what, what's the sort of question in this case, in, in Citizens United? I mean, the, 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 in, let me not say something you're going to take as authoritative of what the court or half the court thinks or whatever it is. But there is a question that's being raised. It's a very, rather deep question. And the question being raised, the problem is that um, the, the Constitution says Congress shall pass no law abridging the freedom of speech. Okay? And it doesn't say exactly what is the freedom of speech. And that's why there's argument throughout the country. And some people say, but laws that limit what anyone can give to a campaign campaign do abridge the freedom of speech. So we know it's money and it isn't speech, but you try speaking in a campaign without money. And don't get into the business. Don't get into the business of saying to one person, we're going to make you speak less, even if he's the world's greatest billionaire, so other people can speak more. That's just the road to perdition. We'll start making distinctions among who says what and so forth. Other people say, no, you have to have a kind of, lead, of, of uh, level playing field when you're talking about political debate. And you can't let some people drown others out. And if Congress wants to take steps to see that that doesn't happen, that doesn't violate the freedom of speech. Now, don't take what I just said as an authoritative count of the opinions in any case, but I'm trying as if I were in a classroom to give you an idea of the kind of thing that people debate in this area. Right now, we did decide the, 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 the case, and I, t I took the side, you know, that it's more in the world. Okay. So, so now, uh, 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 the question is, well, well would, would a case, when is a case overruled? And that's a very deep and difficult question. And the reason that that's a tough question is this, that there are 308 million people or 9 million in this country who have to go about the business of leading their daily lives. And a lot of what they live and their houses, their food, their investments, their, their, their jobs depend upon law. And if law is too unstable, they won't be able to go about their business relying on the law staying the same, okay? And so there's a tremendous conservative instinct in law itself. Don't change anything. <laughs> Somebody used to say, I can't remember where I read it, it says, never decide anything for the first time. I'm not sure how that works, but, but nonetheless. <laughs> then, you can't mean that literally. We wouldn't have decided Brown versus Board of Education. We'd still be back at Plessy v. Ferguson. And so the first group will say, we don't mean never, but be careful. Be careful. Because it's so tempting when you're sitting there to think a case should be overruled, particularly when you think was wrong. Let's try you thinking about overruling a case you think was right. You say that's give you a more fair idea of what's at stake. And so those are the kinds of considerations. I wish I could give you more specific answers, but I really believe that although in cases which you can read about when you overturn something, you can get more specific advice than I just gave you. Still, it comes down to a matter of almost conscience among the judge, knowing that you shouldn't get in the business very often of overturning cases, but sometimes you can. Is this one that calls for it? Best I can do. All right. Uh, on this side. Thank you for coming, Justice Breyer. Um, my name is Scott Lee. I go to the University of Pennsylvania, but I am a proud graduate of Lowell High School. Oh. And um, 
I have a question regarding the Supreme Court nomination process. Mm -hmm. Some have charged that it's become something of a circus. The Senate Judiciary Committee is notorious for digging into the annals of a person's um, personal history and digging up facts that are often irrelevant or particularly damaging. And some say that this, the effect this has had is to be detrimental to both the institution as a whole and to the particular court member's personal integrity. Do you think that there's a problem with the current system and are there reforms to it that should be made? I'm not going to be in a better position to answer that than you. And the reason is you have to remember I was not the person doing the nominating or the confirming. I was the confirmed person and the nominated person. (laughs) And therefore I usually say when people want to know about the appointment process, it's like asking for the recipe for chicken a la king from the point of view of the chicken. But 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 that does that does raise oh sorry uh, it does raise a uh, another point which was that the 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 nomination process those nomination hearings are for a long time the uh, have been the principal way that the public gets to see who is going to be on the court and learn a little bit of what they are thinking mm-hmm. and uh, more recently we've seen. Uh, other opportunities uh, to to learn what the justices think about different things. We saw uh, on, uh, on on Comedy Central uh, a few weeks ago Justice Stevens discussing uh, Citizens United with Stephen Colbert. Uh, we saw uh, on 60 Minutes Justice Scalia uh, giving a tour of his old neighborhood. On C-SPAN we saw Justice Thomas's uh, delightful book party when his memoir came out. On Sesame Street, we saw Justice Sotomayor resolving a dispute between Goldilocks and the Three Bears. <laughs> but uh, as as you know, and you know that you know what's coming now, uh, the one place what we can't see the justices on television is when they are doing the one thing we pay them to do, which is to decide cases and to hear argument. And uh, this is a, a, a perennial question: Why not? permit televising uh, of those arguments and thereby propound uh, the, the message of how the court approaches things uh, more directly. Now, I, I will say I did ask this question of one of your colleagues, and the answer was, uh, I guess, playing to the crowd, said, well, we're trying to protect print journalists, because if it was on television, we, you, know, you might not have a job. Uh, and uh, I thought it was a, a nice try, and I certainly agree. Uh, nevertheless, the question remains, why, uh, why not? Well, first, let's go back to this for a second, because I, I do want to give you one reaction that I did have. Like when I, I mean, it's not, I was there, 17 senators on the other side. They questioned me for 20 hours. Who's counting? But, but uh, <laughs> the, the, the fact is, it is stressful. And at that time, it wasn't as difficult as you say. I mean, things have become much more difficult. And uh, I thought, well, people watch this on television. Luckily, I'm boring. They'll turn it off. And, and uh, then they'll make up their mind, you know. I mean, <clears throat> if people see you and they don't want you, that's it. So what is this? I, I had a happy ending for me. I was content. I think, well, this is a kind of democratic window into a process that once I'm selected, I have power. Uh, I can decide what that constitution means, and I have some protection. You don't want people to be able to, to get rid of me too easily. Uh, they could impeach you. It's unlikely, I hope. And, but the, the, the point is that if we're up there to make some unpopular decisions sometimes, you don't want people responding too much to the popular will. So in this very unusual process, the Constitution has a typical compromise. 
the individual will go to a job where that man or woman will have considerable power over others in the United States in interpreting the law. And yet we want a democratic window uh, through the appointment and the confirmation process. Now, your real question is, well, has it gone too far in the nature of the process? And the senators will respond to what people want. And if they don't respond well to what people want, they'll be out of a job. So the people to talk to and the serious thing are the general public that's interested. Let them try to explain, to understand what it is we do. Let them try to understand something about the nature of the judiciary, and then maybe they will be somewhat, you know, but that's where the pressure has to come from, not from us. I can say everything I want, which I won't. But, 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 but you see, it doesn't even matter, because a judge is a person which is what Lee Campbell pointed out to me years ago, one of my colleagues. A judge is a person who is given quite a lot of power in a very narrow area. And once he gets outside that area and starts talking about other things, people will nod politely because they might get into his courtroom and have a get a decision made. But as soon as the lawyer gets out of the room, he says something to the effect of, oh, there he goes again. You see? So be careful. There are a lot of reasons to be careful. And, uh, and it's not just, now you see where I'm coming from. <coughs> you have to make up your mind about that. And when you do persuade others, or what about television in the courtroom? Television in the courtroom, I think the reason for having it is fairly obvious. You had it actually, you know, we have most of our things are in writing, but some are oral, and you want to sit there. The reason for having it there is because it would, I think, be very good educationally. Uh, you would, in fact, see nine people who are trying to get their job done. And I'd love them to have had a, a, a there for a case, for example, uh, uh, where we had out of Arkansas, which was the question of term limits. Is term limits constitutional or not? The Constitution says the qualifications for being a member of Congress, are you 25 years old, a citizen of the United States, a resident of the state where uh, uh, you're running from? Are there others? Of course there are others. Can't you keep lunatics out? No, no the, the, the uh, answer, if you can keep lunatics out, why can't you keep people who don't own property out? And what you discover is uh, uh, hard to say. And Jefferson's on one side, and Madison was on the other, and, and the, the precedents are in both directions. And you see nine people who have actually hard cases. Uh, these are not easy. Even the ones you think are easy are not easy. And, and uh, uh, they're doing their job. So it would be great educationally. That's a very strong reason to have it. But why not have it? That's what's hard to understand. But there are very uh, there are reasons. I won't say how good they are, because I have to. The truth is, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. What reason? Reason number one. Because people really won't understand that the oral argument has very little to do with the case. It's really almost all in writing, and they'll come to think that that's the case. Okay, that's a point. Reason number two. Because we are a great symbol, the Supreme Court of the United States. If you put television inside the Supreme Court, you will have it everywhere in the country. It already is in a lot of courtrooms, and particularly in criminal cases where it's a danger because of the juries and the witnesses. Reason number three. Because people relate to people. Now, that's good. That's good. It's nice characteristic about human beings that when you see a person... You relate to them. If you talk to them, you relate more. If you see them, you relate more than just hear about them. You hear about them, you relate more of just a statistic. 
And therefore, when you watch somebody on that television, there's the good one and the bad one, or the nice one and the not-so-nice one, or there's this one and there's that one, but who isn't there are the 308 million people for whom we are deciding this decision. Because we are interested in an abstract, not abstract, but not these two people, we are interested in a question of law. And the answer is going to have something to do with how it affects millions of people in the courtroom who are not, sorry, who are not in the courtroom. You see, so it can't be communicated as well. And then the fourth, which I think is probably the strongest in people's minds, but I don't know how, uh, um, I just don't know, so, is that well, what would get her the soundbite? And it, it, someone told me this, who's in the press. Oh, it wasn't you, but it was, it was somebody. He says, it'll be fine. You think it won't affect you. You think it'll make no difference. You think you'll go on doing your same job anyway. And you will, until the first time that you see either one of the, some, a blog or a station or somebody with the pictures build up a picture of you so you look like Simon Legree or you look like the worst person in the world. And the first time this happens, which will only be a few days probably after it gets in there, but maybe not, your behavior will change. You will not want to run that risk again. Is that possible? Yeah, I think it's possible. I think it's possible. And so what do I end up? I end up where I think where most of my colleagues really are is that we are trustees of an institution. We didn't create the Supreme Court of the United States. Through some odd concatenation of circumstances, we happen to be there for a period of time that is limited. And the last thing we want to do, whatever the reasons, however logical, the last thing we want to do is take some step that would hurt the court in practice because people depend on it. So what you have are people who have questions. They have a very conservative attitude on something like this, and they're worried about it. And th that's the best I can do to explain what I see as the state of the art. And if, and if people want to really have the television there, I think they have to go out and do some studies, and they, it can be done, and, but studies that the press doesn't pay for, and, and uh, uh, studies of Pew and others that, that uh, uh, try to look at social attitudes and try to see what happens. They have it in Canada. They have it in Canada, and it hasn't caused a big problem. So there we are. Well, that's a very long-winded saying, way of saying, I don't know. <laughs> All right, on this side. Thank you for being here, Justice Breyer. Uh, I'm a graduate of UC Davis and a current student at GW Law. And um, I was wondering a little bit about recusal. There's been a lot of discussion lately, and I mean, there always is, but especially given uh, Justice Kagan's former job as Solicitor General, there's been a lot of discussion lately about recusal. And I was just curious about uh, some of the personal calculus you go through in making a recusal decision. Yeah, there's a perfectly good example we were last talking about. As far as I know, and I actually read uh, the Chief Justice who looked into this, we follow exactly the same rules that every other judge follows. I have in my office, um, uh, there's nine volumes called the Code of Judicial Conduct. And when I have a sort of thing that strikes me as difficult, should I take myself out of the case? I look at it. I'll go look it up. And everybody does that. And we follow it. The reason you're getting slightly uh, uh, unclear answers is because there could be some question as whether we're legally bound. I don't know if that's a question. Nobody's legally bound by it. It says at the beginning that, you know, we follow it. Okay? So it's not a problem. Now, 
if I don't, can't get a good answer and I'm nervous about it, I'll phone up uh, an ethics professor you might know. I have somebody I trust. And I'll get their view on it. And then I'll make up my own mind. Now, there is a difference here between the Supreme Court and the, uh, the other courts. And that's this. Um, if when I was in the Court of Appeals, if something came up that was at all questionable, I would just take myself out of the case. See, although I'd like to think I was indispensable, I know one judge is, in a sense, as good as another. And if they get rid of me, they can bring in somebody else. You can't do that in the Supreme Court. So if I take myself out of a case, and uh, say it's been suggested by somebody, I'm, I'm not saying they have an interest in suggesting it, I, <laughs> and, and uh, I take myself out of the case, it may end up 4-4, or it may end up that it changes the decision. So therefore, in the Supreme Court, unlike the others, I think you have to be very, very careful to sit when you should sit and not take yourself out unless there is a good reason for doing it. So, so it requires, it has required, it doesn't come up very often, but I would say two or three times I, I've, had, I've had difficult uh, uh, matters and, and uh, it, it's taken some time. Justice Breyer, do you think that when justices do decide to recuse, they should explain why. Currently, the no. practice is just to say. I give a so. hint. What I would do, because you know, you, if, if it's a if it's a recusal thing and it's a major case, what will happen is that it then becomes an article, and then people write about it, and you didn't say the right word, and before you know it, somebody says, "Why did you say that?" that? So the way that I would do it, if I thought the public was interested, is I would tell our press secretary, Pathy Arberg, to give them a hint off the record. <laughs> They'll write about it anyway, but I never say anything off the record. That isn't true, you would. <laughs> but but I, I don't usually say things off the record that I'd be too embarrassed by if they, if they said it on the record, but I just wouldn't want a lot of publicity about it. But I would like the press, I would like the public to know the basic reason. Okay, let's go here. Hi, my name is Matt Cromiger, and I go to UCLA right now. Actually, my question was also about recusals, and I suppose I guess I can just fo- ask a follow-up question. Uh, whether it's the Supreme Court or the Circuit Court, there are different levels of involvement as to why someone would take themselves out of a case. No, it's the same. Well, it should be the same. I mean, it's the same. It's the same. Uh, it's the same book. It's the same. The same statutes. The same code of judicial conduct. I don't. I don't know why it would be different. Well, currently with two of your associates, it's kind of a legal matter with their previous interests, whether they've been involved in a legal issue before. And in Circuit Courts, I'm familiar with a recent case in the Ninth Circuit, where it was an identity issue of how the person might have identified and how that might affect their legal status with, uh, with the case regarding uh, marriage rights. I, I want to see if there's a difference between the identity in there or if there's an association with law. I'd say when I was a circuit court judge and when I was Supreme Court justice, I think it's the same. I don't really see a difference. I mean, I don't see it. One of the hard things for me was the sentencing commission because I'd been on the sentencing commission. And so should I sit in the cases involving the Sentencing Commission? So Justice Black sat in cases that involved legislation that he'd been uh, written when he was a senator, but then how much involved? So what I did was (laughs) um, I asked the parties in the case anonymously (laughs) to tell the clerk what they thought and and, and write something if they wanted. Um, And... um, they didn't care. <laughs> so so I, end, I ended up saying I, w- I wouldn't sit on cases, I think, that challenge the constitutionality of the guidelines. 
that I would sit on the interpretation, something like that. You want to find out about gay rights, and I'm not going to discuss it. <laughs> Thank you both for being here. Okay. Uh, next over here. Hi, my name is Monica Heymond. I'm a graduate from UC Davis, mm -hmm. and I have an uncontroversial question for you. Task for you. Uh, what books do you suggest people read if they are interested in the Supreme Court, other than your own, obviously? <laughs> <laughs> On the Supreme Court, there are lots of good books. There, 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 one of the most interesting ones I read uh, fairly recently was uh, Jeff Shessel wrote a book about the court packing. And, and there are biographies of John Marshall and uh, 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 Chief Justice Rehnquist wrote a very good book. About the uh, about the Supreme Court, it's interesting. He was uh, explaining it uh, <coughs> as he as he saw it. That's a good book, and he wrote a very good book about uh, the Supreme Court in wartime. And uh, um, anyway, so those are, those are some of the ones. Um, <laughs> if, if, if the, I yeah, the reason that made me laugh is because a friend of mine has written a book about Judge Friendly, who was a great judge, and another judge who I know, Dick Posner, wrote it. Biography, and he said he likes uh, this book about Judge Friendly, but he says one of the worst subjects ever to write a book about is a judge. <laughs> well, uh, just it depends on what you want to know about the court. There are many, many, many books. Uh, Linda Greenhouse, who yeah, Linda Greenhouse the court. wrote a good book. What's his, uh, at uh, uh, the New Yorker? Jeff Tubin wrote, right. wrote a good book. I don't know if you've written one yet. But she, <laughs> but just to finish up and plugging Linda's book, she just has a new. It's called, I think, very simple or very short introductions, published by Oxford University Press. It's like a hundred-page book about the Supreme Court to learn the basics if you want to get acquainted with the institution. Oh, there are a, there are books, of course, that no justice will ever encourage you to read, such as Closed Chambers by Edward Lazarus, which was an account of his year as a Supreme Court clerk. I read it. Oh, well. <laughs> uh, and what do you think? See? <laughs> uh, and uh, so it all depends on what you're interested in learning about the court, but if you want to, I can talk to you about that as well uh, uh, after. The Brethren, remember? That was a famous one. Yes, well, that was, again, that was of the first, uh, that was a, a Bob Woodward book in the 1970s. Yeah, but there, 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 it's, well, uh, all, there, it all depends on what you want to know and what you are inclined to believe. And we heard it, and your toughest case? The toughest one is hard to choose because what happens is psychologically. I mean, they've been some I really objected to pretty strongly, like the, the parents involved and so forth. But what happens psychologically is this. There are some awfully difficult cases where it's like on a knife edge. And, and I said, I had one last week. I told Michael, this is absolutely amazing. It's like there's a joke about it. You go, the, the joke is that the judge... Uh, you know, listens to the uh, the uh, plaintiff and says, "You're right. You're absolutely right." And then he listens. And the defendant says, "You haven't heard me, Your Honor." He says, "Okay." Listens. Listens. He says, "You're right. You're absolutely right." <laughs> the, the plaintiff's lawyer gets up and says, "But Judge, you said first I was absolutely right. Now you're saying he's absolutely right. We can't both be absolutely right." He says, "You're right. You're absolutely." <laughs> right. He says, I mean, I really. That's that's sort of what it's like. You 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 you. Uh, you think this is very right, but that's what being open-minded is. It doesn't mean having a view, not having a view. I might have. <laughs> I open the first page. I have a view, okay, and uh, I already know who's right. But then I get the other. Oh, you say you're willing to change your mind. It doesn't mean starting with no view. It doesn't mean keeping no view. It means being willing to change when faced with facts or arguments uh, uh, that lead you to a different conclusion. Now, psychologically, this is what happens. You go through these really tough cases, and 
I think, and, and you, uh, yeah, I think it has a little edge over here. And then maybe you hear the oral argument, and then you get to the conference, and what's happening over those two or three days is you're thinking it, oh, God, this is difficult, but then you sort of go a little bit over this way, and you think, yeah. And by the time you finish the conference, you say, yeah, I guess, I guess so. And then it's tentative in the conference, but when the opinions circulate, you now really have to choose. All right, you choose. Okay, I decided. I've, I've done this now. The next thing that happens is you think you think yourself, oh, that was so difficult, I wish I'd done the opposite now. But you think that was very difficult. It was difficult, but I'm glad I chose the right self. <laughs> then what happens by five days later? I chose the right self. <laughs> Two weeks later, ah, it wasn't that difficult. I mean, I don't see the other. You see, I mean, there is a protective feature in psychology that tends to... to uh, um, protect you in having made uh, uh, the, the decision. I mean, uh, I mean, probably if I pick really tough ones, I'll be something to do with an arbitration. So the answer is, yeah. So the answer is not Bush v. Gore, I take it. Uh, Justice Breyer, thanks for coming down and uh, putting up with me in order to speak to these wonderful students. Uh, and uh, the, uh, there are, of course, many more questions that each of these answers provokes. Uh, even if you cannot watch the Supreme Court on television, you can download arguments every week. Uh, uh, at the Supreme Court website. So you can hear uh, the, the audio files that John Stewart uses each week for his clever reports. Uh, and uh, also read the transcripts every day of what goes on at the court and read, see the briefs. And of course, since you're all in Washington, you should come and visit it. Uh, you can, uh, there are public seats every day uh, and the court will be hearing arguments uh, through, uh, through April. So it is definitely worth your while to do that. Uh, and again, thank you, Justice, for uh, coming and spending Monday night. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.